From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, and the Pacifica Radio Network, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schuck. And I think this is important, John. I mean, you've seen the, um, the data. There are more and more Americans who are not part of any church, who are not religious. Where do they go for the kinds of things that churches have provided throughout history? And I think it's important that we have these things. I think it's an important question for society as we see this ongoing recession of religion. I mean, what's going to take its place in terms of giving people community and sustenance for their ethical life, search for meaning and so forth. I'm joined today by Thomas Krattenmaker. Tom Krattenmaker is a writer specializing in religion in public life. He's the author of Onward Christian Athletes and The Evangelicals You Don't Know. Formerly of Portland, he's now communications director at Yale Divinity School. He is not a believer in God or in the supernatural, but he digs Jesus. In his latest book, Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower, he talks about Jesus as a resource for those who don't have religious beliefs. Via Skype, from New Haven, Connecticut, welcome, Tom, to Progressive Spirit. Hi, really happy to be talking with you today, John. Tell me about this book. How how did you decide to write uh, Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower? A simple and maybe overly glib answer is that one of my Christian friends told me to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Um, the longer story is that um, this friend of mine, his name is Tony Criz, and a lot of people in Portland might know that name. He was prominent in the uh, Donald Miller book, Blue Like Jazz, Tony the Beat Poet. Um, he and I had many conversations at Kells in downtown Portland, cigars, beverages, and he knew that um, I was both very settled in my secular life and being a non-believer, and also one who has a very high regard for the figure of Jesus. And a lot of um, optimism about how society might change for the better if we were able to implement these ethics of Jesus, the example of Jesus, indeed the way of Jesus. And he said, Tom, that should be your next book. You know, a book imploring your fellow secular progressives to consider the way of Jesus. And um, right around that same time, I noticed that in some conversations about religious categories and whatnot, I started to refer to myself as a, quote, secular Jesus follower. And I Googled that. I saw that nobody else was saying that. So that made me feel good because I like to be original. But I also sensed that a lot of people, even though they weren't using those words, might have some of the same inclinations. You know, I find I I resonate with you a great deal. Uh, Not this is about me, but I think it relates. If you Google my name, you'll find an article on the Friendly Atheist blog that I wrote called I'm a Presbyterian Minister Who Doesn't Believe in God. And I've told my congregations that I don't know anything about God, but I do have a heart for Jesus. Well, yes, we're kindred spirits then, I guess. I think so. So, I, And I think there are many people who are who are interested in uh, the secular ethics of Jesus. But let's talk about, first of all, to get there, uh, the, the non-belief part. What, what level of resonance or non-resonance do you have with the supernatural, with God, with the theology of Christianity? Right. Well, I always use the term secular for myself, and that's partly to avoid um, the A word, atheist. I don't call myself an atheist. To me, that implies um, a level of certainty, and I'm more humble in my non-belief. It implies uh, a level of militancy that I don't have. It implies, um, in some conversations, sort of an anti-religion stance, which I very much do not have. I'm actually, in some ways, pro-religion, depending on you know which religion or which expression of religion you might be talking about. So I like to use the word secular, and sometimes I refer to myself as um, being a non-believer. 
I'm not certain about this. I'm humble about it. I'm just not persuaded that the supernatural is real. But um, I know so many people who are believers, and these are people who are intelligent, wonderful people who I respect. And for them, it is real. So I respect that. It's real for them in their life. And I would never try to disabuse them of their belief. So in that sense, I have sort of a friendly stance toward religion and religious people. And let's face it, John, I, I work for a Christian divinity school, and I like doing that. I am very comfortable promoting the cause here at Yale Divinity School. So um, I've always been um, a transgressor of boundaries. And we see that happening uh, in this book where I'm talking about Jesus as a secular person, whereas some people would say that, no, that's just a conversation for Christians and so forth. When you're talking about Jesus, just so everyone knows, you're not talking about Jesus who rose from the dead, except perhaps as uh, figuratively speaking, or the theological doctrines about Jesus. Who is Jesus for you as a secular Jesus follower? I often refer to the figure of Jesus to differentiate what I'm talking about, as opposed to um, Christian doctrine about Jesus as a divine figure the figure who um, saves mankind and womankind from our sins. With this book, I'm not talking about any of that stuff. I'm talking about what we can extract about Jesus in terms of an ethical guide, um, an inspirational example, a way to reconsider our approach to life, how we um, address the biggest issues facing us as a society today and as individuals. And people ask, well, why Jesus? And the answer is that when um, I look at the ethics and example and story of Jesus, and when I map that on to so much of what's going on today, both in terms of my own life and how I engage with issues, I find that the Jesus way is incredibly applicable and transformative. Or to put it another way, if you sort of plug that Jesus teaching into the equation, it turns everything upside down and inside out in a really good way. And so I, I really hope that more people can um, engage with this and find this Jesus figure available to them, even if they're not religious. And uh, who are your teachers, uh, so to speak, in regards to Jesus? As I'm reading your book, I found Walter Wink uh, and the idea of uh, you know nonviolence using his aspects of uh, turning the other cheek as, 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 as resistance, not necessarily passivity or being a doormat. Uh, Bart Ehrman came up in your book. Uh, who, who are some others that kind of, are they historical Jesus kind of scholars? or? Yeah, another one, um, speaking of Portland, Marcus Borg, the late oh, sure. Marcus Borg, who I knew when I lived in Portland, and I had many um, great conversations with him and read many of his books. I don't think I mentioned him in the book, but he's very much in my mind. Um, conversations with many of my Christian friends, um, including mainliners and evangelicals, Conversations I'm having now at the uh, Yale Humanist Community, which has become my community here in New Haven, we have a discussion group where we talk about Jesus and some other um, great figures and philosophies that we try to follow in our lives. So that's the conversation I'm having now that's helping me make sense of this. And that's the group uh, that you call in the book WTF? That's right, WTF, question mark, which stands for who or what to follow. And we have some fascinating discussions on a monthly basis. And um, it's actually a religiously mixed bunch. And we don't only talk about Jesus, but we often do talk about Jesus and some of the teachings that are more challenging and how we might possibly apply them or follow them and what that would look like. And so let's talk about that group for a second, because that is almost, you might say, your church, your community. 
Yeah, and in fact, um, you could say the same thing about the uh, Yale Humanist community. Uh-huh. We have these Sunday gatherings called Humanist Haven. And there are some parallels with what happens at a church. Some really significant differences, too. And um, it's, it, it is safe to say that for those of us who are involved, what we do at the Yale Humanist community parallels what church people do at church on Sundays and at days during the, and on days during the week. Can you talk a little bit about that? What kind of things do you do? Well, it's, I don't want to sound like overly pretentious, but it's the search for meaning. Um, it's having community where you talk about big things. I mean, many of us have quote-unquote community around common interests or people we work with or things we like to do for fun. And those are all valuable, but I'm finding that there's something especially valuable being part of a community where you talk about ethics and you take a long, hard look at what's going on in your own life and in your society. These are more intentional communities, and um, it's important that those of us who are not part of the church world that we begin to find those things for ourselves and begin to create and grow these things because I think something is lost to us as individuals and to society when we don't have that kind of community in our lives. And I think this is important, John. I mean, you've seen the, um, the data. There are more and more Americans who are not part of any church, who are not religious. Where do they go for the kinds of things that churches have provided throughout history? And I think it's important that we have these things I think it's an important question for society as we see this ongoing recession of religion. I mean, what's going to take its place in terms of giving people community and sustenance for their ethical life, search for meaning, and so forth? So are churches, and some some communities might be trying to change, uh, but it's a lot of baggage, isn't it? It is. And um, I think churches are looking at how they can change. And I think some will be successful and they'll attract people. Um, I think there are other people who probably won't go to church, uh, no matter how great the churches are or what kinds of changes they make. That's a whole other discussion, and it probably has to do with, you know, what um, supernatural claims, uh, what people are able to believe and not. I think it's important to recognize the reality of this and find community, find venues for the non-religious, for whom church is never going to be an option. Uh, Thomas Crattenmaker is my guest. He's the author of the upcoming book, Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower, Finding Answers in Jesus for Those Who Don't Believe. Uh, One uh, aspect about uh, Jesus that you wrote in your book is that Jesus kept bad company. Uh, So for you and perhaps for secular people, who who are the bad company that uh, for whom Jesus kept and we might think of needing to keep? The first thing uh, that comes to mind for me when I uh, hear you um, say that is um, the Muslim community. When I was in Portland, I had the great um, pleasure of engaging pretty deeply with the Portland area Muslim community. And it was one of the best experiences and most educational experiences of my life. It started out with me getting to know the head of the Muslim Educational Trust in the Portland area. This was because I interviewed him for one of my USA Today columns. And uh, a great friendship started to grow out of that friendship with him as well as his organization. I ended up going to their school several times to meet with the kids and the teachers. Um, They had these monthly potluck gatherings at Portland State University. I started going to those. They had me speak at one of them. I even got an award one time, friend of MET, which just really thrilled me. And I felt like, you know, this is really a good thing to be doing and a great place for me to be, crossing these boundaries transgressing the boundaries, as the theologian uh, Willie Jennings might say. 
And then I took it, you know, a couple other crazy steps into um, engaging with evangelical Christians, which in some sense is the opposite end of the spectrum for my Muslim friends. And that was an incredible experience and a real eye opener in a good way. You talked about uh, in that chapter uh, something that was really key for me of getting past the binary us versus them. Uh, exactly. In fact, you were criticized uh, for an article in which you uh, talked, I think it was Focus on the Family, and you were hoping to help, you know, they're pretty an anti-gay organization, but they're trying to come around a little bit, and you wanted to acknowledge that part, and then yeah. you were criticized yeah, talk, for talk that. Yeah, talk about transgressing the, yeah. the boundaries. And there were some people who um, really didn't appreciate that I, that I did that and that I said what I said. They felt like I was uh, consorting with the enemy or strengthening the enemy, and I actually understand where they're coming from. I mean, I have a lot of privilege in doing what I'm doing because I'm straight. And I have a lot of gay people I know who have been hurt by the rhetoric of James Dobson and Focus on the Family over the years. So in a sense, it's easy for me to say, yay, Focus on the Family, you're starting to come around. Some baby steps, hope you keep going. You know, it's relatively easy for me to do that. But I understand how there are many others who wouldn't be able to make that step and who might resent me for doing it. And so I accept their criticism, you know? But you make a good point there of the middle isn't necessarily mushy and, uh, I don't know, what we might say. Uh, lame. <laughs> lame or whatever, but the, but there's actually a, a space there, especially in our, our polarized place in which we need to find uh, points of connection uh, between the opposite groups. Yeah, especially today, as you say. And when um, you go into that metaphorical space, you're going to get flack from both sides. I go through this all the time. I mean, you get it from your own side, too, obviously. It's like you need to have eyes in the back of your head when you go out there. Because there are people who want to keep the, um, the battle line straight. They want to keep the troops on high alert. They don't want to do anything that would um, weaken the home team and strengthen the other team. And I understand all that. And I don't enjoy like people on my own side getting mad at me, but it's really an important principle to me. It gives me that feeling that you get when you do something that's really principled and maybe crazy, but it's a feeling of satisfaction that I've really cultivated over the years and it's what drives me on. And I have to say, I've met some really great people there and I've learned so many interesting things. But uh, every now and then, it gets a little bit scary, I have to admit. Now, you're... Uh life leading up to where you are now uh was church a part of your life was 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 jesus well, it was when something? i was a kid okay and um, some degree as when i was a younger adult because i was raised catholic i would say nominally catholic my mom took my sisters and me but i can't say that we were super into it it was mainly out of a sense of obligation and you got to realize that in the 60s and 70s if you were going to be a respectable respectable member of society a respectable family you probably had to go to church and in this day and age, a lot of people who went for those reasons really don't feel the same motivation to go anymore. But um, that's where I first got Jesus in me, you might say, because even though church was not meaningful to me, the Jesus parts, well, some of those stuck with me and got in my head and my, and my heart, and they stayed there. Um, over my adult life, I just drifted away from, from church and religion. I became very involved with religion as a writer and an analyst and a columnist. Now, I've been writing about religion and public life now for almost 15 years. Um, the difference now is, especially with this book, is that I'm going beyond what you do as an analyst and a journalist, and I'm talking about like 
what's happening in my own life and what am I trying to do as an individual to um, follow this way of Jesus. So that's the departure. Now we have second and third generation nuns, people who have had really no background. Yeah, that's a great point. And And I meet them quite a bit. What do you find that they say about Jesus if they've had no, no context, good or bad? They always have some familiarity. That's not to say they know a lot. But they might have some um, vague sense that Jesus was an interesting um, provider of ethics, modeler of ethics, you might say. Um, That might be on the upside. On the downside, they may have a very hard time differentiating between Jesus, the figure, and Christianity. And for some of these people, Christianity may be very off-putting. And what they know about it may be very limited. What they know about it may be limited to what they know from following politics or mainstream media coverage, in which case they might associate it with, you know, a really off-putting form of right-wing politics and anti-gay rhetoric and so forth. And so to the extent that they hear and see Jesus being invoked in those contexts, they find Jesus off-putting. So, um, It's going to be a big ask for those people to think, oh, there may be something fascinating about the figure of Jesus, and I can extricate Jesus from religion. I hope they do that. But on the other hand, I do find that there are lots of people who aren't religious, but they have some inchoate sense that there's something valuable about Jesus here, and the Jesus conversation is different from the conversation about Christianity or doctrine. And these are the people who I'm hoping I can reach and who might find something valuable in this book. Well, what do you think? What's valuable? Some more about Jesus. You talk in your books, you talk on a number of issues, prison reform, racism, sexual ethics, consumerism. Give us a couple of examples for you of how following Jesus can be a good thing in a non-supernatural, secular way. As you um, indicated, much of the book is built around social issues. And I rely on my um, research and my knowledge as a journalist to try to map out What is the issue or what is the problem we have in society, whether it's racism, um, over-incarceration, violence, um, sexual abuse? And I show how the Jesus way is transformative if we apply it. But there's one chapter that is more personal, and that has to do with um, anxiety. This is also a social issue. Anxiety is a real problem in American culture. And it's something that I always struggle with, too. I get stressed out. I overreact to things. Here's where I think the Jesus way is so counter to what I normally do and could be so helpful if I could only implement it. And so I'm having a real up and down process with that. Some days I'm able to incorporate that Jesus way. Other days, not so much. But if you look at the stories about Jesus in the Bible, there are teachings about worry and anxiety that are really helpful. You know, he teaches, don't worry. It does not add a single hour to the length of your life or a single unit of um, quality to your life. Look at the birds in the field. They don't worry about these things and they're provided for. And then I think about uh, what I would have done if I would have been there on the scene where we hear the famous story of the loaves and fishes, where you have all these um, people who have gathered and the disciples are feeling somewhat responsible for them. And Jesus seems to be indicating that we got to find a way to feed these people. I would have been, no way, man. How the hell are we going to feed all these people? John, that's the kind of thing that stresses me out. And I think it's fascinating to see what happens in that story. I look at it in my own secular way. 
But for me, it's very revealing and inspiring. I began to see some way that I could have a less anxious and stressful response to things in my life. People can and do engage all of these causes, prison reform, racism, sexual ethics, consumerism, boundary breaking, without Jesus. Is there an aspect of Jesus that's, that's important that can help us transcend, I don't know, what it might be? Is there an aspect about uh, being a secular follower of Jesus that is helpful in those other causes that people can do without Jesus? I, I want to point out that there are many um, progressive, secular people and activists who are doing great things in their communities. And for them, they may think, I can do this without Jesus. What are you talking about? No problem. And that's true. But the thing about Jesus, not only do we get these ethical teachings and this philosophy, but there are stories. And sometimes stories can gra- add extra inspiration and a sense of how to do things that we can't get from just a dry recitation of philosophy and wisdom. So there's that. But even more important, um, as we mentioned, John, going throughout the book, we have these issues that are going on in our society. The through line or the common element in all of my analysis is the way that the figure of Jesus is such a humanizing force. Or as I sometimes put it, I find Jesus consistently rehumanizing people and situations that have been dehumanized to us. And that applies so powerfully, whether it's racism or over-incarceration or the way, the way men mistreat women. Over and over, this is really powerful to me. And it's probably the biggest through line I see in the Jesus example and teachings. And, you know, you mentioned transcendence. I think that's an important question. It's a hard question for a secular person to address because it sounds like religion. If you say transcendence, people might think you're talking about heaven or about God. So I'm trying to work out a way to talk about it. And what I'm seeing over and over again is what you might call horizontal transcendence, where we get outside of ourselves, out of our trivial self-seeking and our selfish ways, and we worry about other people and engage with other people and try to be there for them. I know it sounds hokey and overly simplistic, but I think there's something powerful in that, and I think it relates strongly to the figure of Jesus, too. There's kind of a protection, a big fence around Jesus built by Christians. And you mentioned this in the C.S. Lewis uh, thing that you've got. Jesus was either a lunatic or a liar or a lord, one of the three, uh, that you can't pick and choose. You've got to take the whole package. And and you're saying, no, there's another option. We can see Jesus as a, a legend. Uh, we can we can pick and choose. We can take this this aspect of of this Jesus tradition and and we can mix it. Uh, in ways that are uh, creative and new and secular. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to you, obviously, and it does to me. We should acknowledge that there will be um, some people, especially on the more um, conservative end of the spectrum, who just say hogwash. And I've heard from some of them on Twitter, and there's been some other stuff on social media. And the idea there is that you can't be a secular Jesus follower. Give me a break. That makes no sense that the... um, The potency of Jesus 100% depends on his divine status. You can't pursue this outside of traditional Christianity. I mean, I knew that response was going to come, and I'm already seeing it, and there's going to be a lot more of that response when the book comes out. So to them, I would say, well, a lot of us, we're just not going to be traditional church people, so what would you prefer, to be inspired and influenced by Jesus or not? And I would think they would say, yes, be inspired by Jesus. That's better. But someone don't want to accept the premise of my, of my statement there, John. 
I uh, engaged also here in Portland with uh, my some Muslim friends. We have a mosque uh, or a masjid just across the street from from my church, and young. Muslims, 20-year-olds, 30, 25, college students, university students, and I find that they are also in the aspect of kind of reforming their own tradition, uh, finding that Muhammad was a pretty cool guy, or Jesus, too. Uh, Muslims highly rever the social aspects of Jesus. So I, th- I think that there's a, a modernization, a reforming on the secular level of, of their figure, too, as well as uh, Jesus for Christians. That's really cool that uh, your church is engaging with the, um, I guess, the mosque that's located close to you. And I'm sure that's a great experience for you and the people in your church. But we are entering a different time, and it's possible to have a different conversation about Jesus and about mm-hmm. Muhammad. And I, st- I think there's a lot there if we only find a way of having um, an applicable and relevant conversation about these figures. One of my critiques of the secular world is that too many of us want to sort of, sort of go it alone and start from scratch in terms of developing our ethics and philosophies. And um, I say, no, we can look at time-tested sources of input and great prophets and figures from the past, very much including Jesus. There's a lot of value there. And even if you don't buy the religious doctrine, you can see Jesus as a vehicle for this understanding of the world or maybe the embodiment of wisdom and um, a new way of approaching life. And Yes, picking and choosing, there's a lot of that going on, let's be honest. And we can go terribly um, astray when we do that. That's one reason why I think that it's important for a secular Jesus follower to be doing this in the company of other people who are having these earnest conversations about life, because it could go horribly astray, or it could go in very self-serving directions. But when it comes to picking and choosing, I would say this, I mean, although I'm doing it, when it comes to the body of ethical teachings, I'm a little less inclined to pick and choose. And I feel like I'm going to take every Jesus teaching pretty seriously there and see what's in there that um, may have value and applicability to my life and what's going on in society. Thomas Crattenmaker is my guest on Progressive Spirit. He's the author of Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower, Finding Answers in Jesus for Those Who Don't Believe. Uh, thank you so much for this book and for being with me today. Thank you, and uh, thanks for the good stuff you're doing in Portland. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. Get a podcast of this program at ProgressiveSpirit.net. Progressive Spirit is heard on radio stations through the Pacifica Radio Network. From the KBOO Studios in Portland, Oregon, I'm John Shuck. Be welcome.